Very cool. It is, uh, it is the fall and uh, life goes on here and enjoy the summer a little different pace. I uh, hope you got a little break from the typical routine, but we love uh, being uh, uh, back in the fall. And again, if you, you hear a lot about life groups, if you would like to be in one you haven't been, talk to Stephen, talk to somebody else around here, but we'd love to help you get connected. One more thing that uh, just going to talk quickly about, you'll get way more information about this in, in subsequent weeks, but we're hoping to have an uh, opportunity for everybody to have dinner with one elder and uh, one of the pastoral staff. So you're going to hear more about this, but an opportunity just to interact, to hear from, from a staff member, from an elder, a little bit about uh, what we're hoping for for RCC, hoping your experience opportunity for you to ask questions, but you'll hear more about that uh, coming up in the, uh, in the days ahead. But be, be looking uh, to, to join us for, for dinner. Now, those of us who are older, I see some of the younger folks, but uh, 21 years ago today is a day that uh, most of us will not forget. The impact of uh, what happened on uh, that date, 9-11, has become a, a, a big day. But uh, in many ways, the country changed. You know, some of us are old enough to remember the days before TSA at the airport and uh, how life changed uh, because of events as, as they unfolded. So uh, um, I'd like us to pause just for a second, and particularly for those families who were changed really in demonstrable way forever on 9-11. But let's just pray for uh, those families and uh, just pray again that uh, God would reveal himself to these folks, uh, to everybody. But uh, yeah, a hard day. 9-11 is a hard day for a lot, a lot of folks. So just if you will where you are, just take a second and ask the Lord to intervene in some of those lives. Father, you're always working, and we do believe you are sovereign in all circumstances. Think particularly of those folks that are hurting this morning as uh, the memories of 21 years ago touched their lives uh, pretty intimately. Pray that you would draw folks to yourself, even 21 years later. Pray that you would be putting folks in their lives that love you. And the hope that's in Jesus and Jesus alone would be more fully experienced. Father, you are working every minute of every day, but there are some memories which just stick with us a little more clearly than the others. Our prayers, not only for those folks, but for ourselves that you'll increase our confidence in Jesus' love, in his grace, and in his forgiveness. Our prayer now is, as we worship you together, Father, is that you will again, as always, help us to see Jesus more clearly. That's our prayer. And we ask this in the name of
of Jesus. Amen. So, I was talking with a buddy about three weeks ago, and I hadn't been with him in uh, four or five years, and doesn't live here, but uh, was, was in town, so uh, asked to get together, and, and uh, this guy I know fairly well. His life's not been easy. He's had marital challenges. Got some kids. Things have not been easy with his kids. Professionally, things haven't gone wonderfully. And we got talking about, about Jesus, and uh, I'd never really asked about how he came to faith. And he started talking about when he was in his late 20s, he hadn't grown up in a home with any spiritual life, and he was pursuing different religions, one of which was Christianity. And his grandfather told him, well, you can look at the Bible and Christianity, but these authors didn't really know what they were talking about. This is a book from antiquity that really has no relevance, but he's trying to figure out life and fill that hole in his life that hadn't been filled. He said, you know, I'm thinking about Christianity, I'm reading all this stuff, but he says, you know, I never actually read the Bible. I never read it for myself. So he's about 28 years old, and he decides to read through the four Gospels. He starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and goes through John, and then does it again. And he said, the second time when I'm reading through John, he said, I met Jesus. Now, this is about 30 years ago for this guy. He said, I, I met Jesus, and he got the truth of who his life, of who Jesus is, and it changed his life. So we got talking, and I started asking about the typical things. His marriage. Maybe some improvement. Not great. His kids. The challenges I'd known about before had only increased. It was only more complicated. Now, he's about my age, maybe just a couple of years younger. Professionally, things weren't going that great yet. But what struck me is just the joy this guy had. I'm going to tell you this non-anxious, joyful presence the circumstances of his life really hadn't gotten much better since the last time we'd talked face-to-face years before. But all he wanted to talk about was just how much that connection with Jesus meant to him. It's what Jesus describes as the abundant life. And here he was, his life is not easy, his life is not all that pleasant circumstantially, but the power of Jesus and his walking with Jesus, you could just feel it in him, it just lit him up. God created us to be happy. I, was, I never figured that out until I was in my 20s. I thought all these commands in the Bible, I knew several of them kept me from happiness. Until I finally realized those commands are in there. It's just we're not smart enough to figure out what really will make us happy. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus into the world. 
And the key to this abundant life, the key to this joy-filled life is seeing Jesus. And that's what the gospel of John is about from the beginning to end. John, this author, is trying to give us a picture of Jesus, and it's growing. He's filling it in that we might experience, every one of us, what my body is experiencing. Now, in this text, John has talked about who Jesus is, and, and, and as we go through the narrative, there's lots of characters, but you got Jesus at the center, as we would expect, talking about who he is. And there's a crescendo through the gospel of John. And the crescendo builds. And we're going to hit a high point today. Jesus has also been de demonstrating who he is. He's God. He's the Savior. By, by, by these miracles he's done. Now we're in John chapter 11. And we're going to get this picture. Because you got these true crescendos. Who Jesus says he is, that's building. And what he's doing, the miracles, that's building. And we're going to look at these crescendos today. And in this account, we're going to see the most bold declaration of who he is. And we're going to see this radical, astonishing miracle. And the point for John, the author of this, is that we see Jesus. And we run to him. We cling to him. We embrace him. Because ah, he's the key to enjoying life. Now, we're going to look at a whole chapter because it's one story. Or not the whole chapter, but most of the chapter this morning. John chapter 11. And let's start with the setting. Have most of you heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead? That's our text for today. A crescendo of who Jesus is and a crescendo of this miracle. Raising people from the dead. This is big. And my concern is the familiarity of stories like this. For some of us, maybe we kind of miss the point a little bit. The significance, the consequence. So, here's what John's going to show us. Jesus has a special relationship with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He loves the whole world, right? But he has a special relationship with these three, and John's going to try and make that clear. Jesus is told Lazarus is sick. And the expectation is because he loves Mary and, and Martha and Lazarus when he's sick, Jesus is going to come and heal him. That's the expectation. But instead, Jesus is told Lazarus is sick, and guess what he does? If my doctor did this, I would find a new doctor. If my doctor responded the way that Jesus does when these people he loves tells them that Lazarus is sick, I would never visit that doctor again. Now, I'd like to think I wouldn't go on all those, video, those uh, things and say bad things, but you never know to protect others. Lazarus dies. Jesus waits. 
And then he's going to tell us why he waited. The blind man. Hey, why is this guy blind? Who sinned? He or his parents? Jesus said he was born blind. Now it's okay when we read about the blind man and Lazarus. We just don't want this truth to be true about our lives. <laughs> Again, here's the text. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, those three. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with a, a, an ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now John hasn't told us this story yet. That's still coming. So it could be expected that early readers of this were familiar, or he's just setting us up for what's going to come later. Uh, verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he who, whom you love is ill. Now it doesn't say come heal him because it's just understood. They sent messengers to Jesus, that guy you love, Lazarus, our brother, he's ill. You love us, get here and fix this. We want you to change those circumstances now. We want him not to be sick. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. And he doesn't mean he's not going to die. He knows he's going to lead to death. He does. It's not going to end in death in his physical death right now. It's not the ultimate point. And again, it's okay for me with the blind man and Lazarus. I just don't want him to say this about me. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's why he's sick. And everything's going to happen here so you all will get a clearer picture of God. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John is using language here that's different than when most places because he's trying to convey this isn't some stranger, this isn't some acquaintance. We're talking about people with whom he had a close, personal, intimate relationship. If there's anybody that would have expected Jesus to drop things and show up when they asked, given the magnitude of what's going on, it was Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Verse 6. So that when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So because he loved them. You see the logic in John's mind? Their brother's sick, he's dying. Come help us. But because he loved him, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? 
If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So he's using this reference to light and day literally and figuratively simultaneously. It's easier to walk in the daytime, and they didn't have street lamps. But you're with me. I'm the light. Dangerous? Sure. Things are going to be okay. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples, who don't always get the figurative language, and it's not always that easy, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, that the glory of God might be displayed, I am glad that I was not there. Now, does this make any sense to these guys at this point in time? You didn't go. We've seen you heal a bunch of people. He died. And this is for our good somehow. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Notice the connection, the inseparable link between God's glory being revealed and us believing. What gets us to believe? This God, Jesus? There is no one like him. We're living in an evangelical culture where people think they can adore Christ, but quite frankly, they're not fascinated by him. We know a little about him. We get that get out of hell free card, we think. He's nice. But quite frankly, there is a big football game on today. I don't know if you know it. Green Bay versus the Minnesota Vikings. This is huge. (laughs) And there's still those who manifest control of the evil one by cheering for the wrong football team. But we don't fight against them. They are still in the control of the evil one. And we pray that they would be set free and that the Vikings will win the game, which I don't think there's much chance of. But we got all this stuff. The essence of faith, the essence of following Jesus, of treasuring Jesus, of what my friend is experiencing that I had coffee with, this Jesus guy is better than anything. And that's what John is going to great lengths through this text to try and point out to us. And I'll tell you again, I'm afraid particularly for those of us who have grown up in the church, sometimes our familiarity with this keeps us from fully appreciating and experiencing the magnitude of who he is. And Jesus said, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, this is a hard one for me to get really what he's saying there. It could just be, okay, we're risking our life to go there and we're willing to go risk our life. I think that's, there's a courage in it, I think. But again, we know Thomas as, what's the first, how do we describe him? It starts with a D, which is true. But it feels like to me here, he's all caught up in the energy and I don't know that he knows exactly, he doesn't exactly know what he's saying, but 
Uh, again, John quotes him as, as wanting to go there. So now we're going to hit this first crescendo of what Jesus says. There are seven I am statements as we've gone through John. I'm sure you all remember them. The first one is, I am the bread of life. Then he developed that. And he said, I am the light of the world. We got to John chapter 10, there were two. I am the, the, the gate for the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. We're going to hear the fifth one today. And in my estimation, again, he's building this crescendo in terms of who he declares who he is. Now, it starts with Mark asking, why didn't you come sooner? Then we're going to get this crescendo truth. These I am statements are big. This is the fifth one. There's going to be two more. I am the resurrection and I am the life. It's the foundational truth to all of life. I know we got issues. I know we got problems. I'm hoping the Vikings win. My buddy's got trouble at home in his marriage. He's got trouble with his adult kids. He's got trouble with work. How do we experience that non-anxious presence, that joyful non-anxious presence? Let me tell you here, those of you here and those of you at home online or if you're somewhere else, here's the foundational truth, getting that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now, he's going to give us two more I am statements. We ain't to the end of this. He's continuing to develop it, but this is big. And then the promise, the implications for us if we get that he's the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now that sentence can almost appear as though it's nonsensical. I die and yet I live and yet I know never die. How is that? We're going to pull this apart here because this is foundational and this sentence of Jesus is filled with meaning. Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She's very diplomatic. Very diplomatic. Here's what she's saying. I thought you loved us. I thought you cared about us. I thought you cared about Lazarus. I thought you cared about Mary, Mary and me. What motivated you not to show? Verse 22, that even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, is she thinking that maybe he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Impossible for us to know as I read this text. I don't think so. She's questioning his judgment while simultaneously trying to convey that she's got some appreciation. He's going to make it more clear as we go for who he is. 
May I see the hands of those who have ever questioned God's judgment in allowing difficult circumstances in our life? Join the club. The journey of faith. And I think that's what John, as he recounts the story, is trying to reveal to us. Even for somebody who pretty much got who he is, she was still wrestling. Verse 23, and Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jewish theology held to a resurrection at the end of time. We would call it at the consummation of the kingdom at Jesus' second return. We have much more clarity about this with the New Testament than from the Old Testament. But good Jewish theology believed there was a resurrection at the end. One of the big differences theologically, if you hear about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Pharisees believed in a resurrection, the Sadducees did not. The Pharisees had this one. They got a lot wrong, but they got this one right. And that's what she's referencing. When Jesus said, your brother will rise again, she's going, I know he will. At the end. Then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asked this question that I think is relevant for all of us. You believe what I've just told you. Then you got this gorgeous declaration. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, I want to pull apart this foundational truth here, right, that needs to be the foundation. If we're going to enjoy life in this life and have hope in eternity, needs to be the foundation of, of what we believe. But we read the sentence, and I think, and I've done this with lots of groups over the years, we kind of read it and we go, oh, that's nice, and maybe we should hang out on the wall without really pulling apart what Jesus said. This is pregnant with meaning here. This is a foundational truth that Jesus has been building to, oh, forgive me for those of you guys online that are having trouble seeing me, forgive me. How is it if I stand back here? From the Green Bay fan, sure. Oh, yeah, Green Bay, living in a small town, Wisconsin. Anyway, you know there are air vents back there that are really cool? So I'm tempted to preach from, because uh, I would be like 20 degrees cooler than all of you. So resurrection and the life, these ideas are related. The resurrection comes from the life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. That resurrection, when it occurs... At the end of time, it's founded in me. Now, these Old Testament folks didn't get that yet. They got that there's going to be a resurrection if they were a good Jewish theologian at the end time. But they didn't get that Jesus is the key to that resurrection. And he's the life. He's been talking about that. He's talked about being the light of the world, this living bread. He's the bread of life. I'm the guy that changes your life that gets you forgiveness of sins through connection with the Father through his death and resurrection. We haven't gotten there yet in the gospel. But through this relationship with me, and it's not just life. Remember in John 10, abundant life. May I see the hands of those people who would like to be happier tomorrow than they are today. May I see your hands? People suggest from time to time they don't have the meaning to life. We got it. 
And if you already get this truth and you want to be happier, spend the rest of today after the Vikings kick Green Bay thinking about it. Now, I'm going to try and think about it during the game, but I probably won't. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the one that's going to bring about this resurrection, but I'm the one that brings eternal life, spiritual life, abundant life. It comes through being connected with me. And then he's, he's pulling this apart. I want you to notice. Because you read the sentence, you live and then you die and then you never die. What in the world kind of gibberish is Jesus speaking here? What he's doing is pulling apart what he means by resurrection and what he means by life. He first references the resurrection and then he references life. I am the resurrection. So whoever believes in me, though he die, are the odds high that we're going to die physically? Okay, I just want to be clear here. Particularly if you're in the process of coming to faith and you haven't yet quite chosen to, to Jesus. This is essential to, to, to Christianity, to orthodoxy. We're going to die physically. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. What's he saying there? Eventually, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a resurrection. And that body which was put in the grain, put in the ground, or, or, or sometimes now we do something else with it, God can do whatever he wants, is going to be raised. I am the resurrection and the life. And everyone who lives has that life in me and believes in me shall never, ever, ever, ever die. We talk about that as the intermediate state where the body is dead, but we, the essence of who he is, the spiritual element of who we are, goes to be in heaven. Guys, this is the essence of Christianity. It's the big idea of the Bible from the beginning to end. And you go, man, I've been there, heard that. Yes. But why do you think the biblical authors keep talking about this? Because it's the most important thing in life. And we live in a world with so much good stuff that sometimes the Minnesota Vikings become more important to us than it actually should. Spoken from a guy whose car is painted in Green Bay Packard colors. <laughs> but this is that foundational truth and the benefit for us. And now Jesus' emotions. So we go to this next piece. John wants to give us a picture. We got this first crescendo and he wants us to give us a piece of what Jesus is now feeling. And when she had said this, Martha declared that he is the Christ, the Messiah... She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. From Martha... And now from Mary. 
Isn't it nice how polite they are in terms of questioning Jesus' judgment? They do it so kindly. You ever have to do that, people, in your life? And this has nothing to do with a sermon. Do you ever have people that nicely question your judgment? I like the people. The people that are easiest for me were Todd. What in the world were you thinking? What was going on in your head? Those people who are nice to me, sometimes it just takes me a little longer to figure out what they mean. Now, Jesus being omniscient, he doesn't have to wonder with Mary and Martha. He knows exactly. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Now, this word here that's translated greatly troubled, I had one commentator point to it that it ought to be translated more strongly. And I thought he made a good argument and I looked at it. This word is not used very many times in scripture, so you look elsewhere. And this is a word that's filled with, he's angry, he's ticked. He's deeply moved and he's angry. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, here's the third time this is brought up. Could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Why in the world didn't he show up? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was cave and a stone lay against it. So I think Jesus here, we get a picture of the infinite God who became a human being, the combination, that united natures. What's he feeling here? His heart is breaking. Guys, don't ever mistake it. We have hope over the, the final enemy, death, but death is an enemy. In my profession, I've had lots of experience with people that die. Don't ever think that death isn't an enemy. Now, it's an enemy that we ultimately kick its rear end, but death is an enemy, always. Mary and Martha are grieving. His friend Lazarus has died. He's grieving. People are grieving around him. Jesus is weeping. Well, simultaneously, he's angry. Now, this is a hard one, so you're going to have to stick with me, and, and this is me trying to get the best sense, but with less definitive confidence. What's he mad at? What's, what's he mad at? I think death, sin in the world, its consequences for, for what's happening here, but I think also... Mary and Martha and the whole crowd are questioning his judgment. Why didn't you come? He's weeping, genuine sorrow. But he's also ticked. Now, I'm going to go to a place real quickly in terms of application for us. I've seen churchgoers get angry, and it felt like to me they weren't weeping. You following me? Did damage, in my estimation, for the sake of Christ. It's the combination of emotions that Jesus has here that I think is key to how we live in this world. Is there anything, can I see your hands if there's anything in the world that makes you angry? Anybody? There's stuff going on that just flipping ticks me off. I've seen the angry response even by churchgoers without, in my estimation, a sense of weeping simultaneously. It's destructive. I've seen weeping without the anger. 
doesn't feel like to me anything gets done. We just sit and weep passively. We talk a lot around here about standing for Jesus in love. There's stuff in this world that ought to tick us off. If it's not ticking you off, I would, if I were you, ask why. If it's not simultaneously making you weep for the same people that are ticking you off, I again would ask, why? How do we stand in love? The emotions I think we ought to be feeling? Anger, the stuff that doesn't reflect the character of God, but brokenness, sorrow for these, these folks. Did I read all this? I did read it all, didn't I? Okay, perfect. Thank you, Johnny. It's nice to see you. And now we got the second crescendo, what Jesus does. Jesus, you remember the foundational truth? Does anybody remember what it was? Somebody be real courageous and brave, like you believe this stuff. What's that truth? He's the resurrection and the life. I like it more like, he's the resurrection and the life, rather than he's the resurrection and the life. But you say it however you want. This is what's going on. We got this foundational truth that Jesus has built to, and now with this big miracle, we're going to get there. Now, before I read this, I think our familiarity with this sometimes diminishes its impact. I also think, for most of us, our less experience with physical death. First dead body I saw was my grandfather in 1976, my senior year of high school. I won't forget it. The thing that used to be more traditional when people died is before the funeral, the memorial service, you would often have a review. I don't think we do that so much anymore for all kinds of reasons, and I'm not trying to suggest that we should reinitiate this, but what it did was you went and you sat, usually with the family, with the dead body. I've been with oh, a few folks when they breathed their last. I've been with lots of family with their dead body. I'll never forget the first guy I was with when he died. Barton Sanguine, my first church, I'm 27 years old. His wife wanted me with him a lot for about the last two months. I spent a lot of time at the hospital with his wife while he was, while he was getting ready to die. And I'll never forget this. Only time I've ever seen this. Just his wife and him and me in the room. This is the truth. The last thing he said, he looked at his wife's eyes and he went, couldn't speak. He said, I love you. Couldn't hear it, but he mouthed to her and he was gone. So I have two great impressions from that day. The first one is this. This is crazy that he was able to do that in his last conscious moment. The second of, second is, when you die, you're dead. In an instant, he was gone, and you could see it. Hollywood TV, they portray living people pretending to be dead. If you've never seen a dead body, 
Hollywood cannot mimic this. When somebody's dead, he said he mouthed, and he was, you could, he was gone. He was no longer there. Now, if you've not had that experience, if you've been with a dead body, a corpse, I'm going to ask you, I'm not trying to get you to live in misery, but just think about that because when they're gone, they're gone. It's empty. So what Jesus does here, he's done some great miracles, turned water into wine, he walked on the water, he fed 5,000 people. He did a bunch of stuff. Guys, this is big. And why does he raise Lazarus from the dead? To prove that he has the power to raise us. That the life we have in him fills us with an abundant life now. And when we face that final enemy, we look at it and go. Because it is an enemy. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha said, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. We see the glory of God, we see the glory of Christ, and we believe the two go together. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this unaccountable standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I allowed Mary and Martha and Lazarus to go through really different, difficult experiences that they and everybody else, including us now 2,000 years ago, might see the glory of Jesus and believe. And when he said this, said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, when the Almighty God says stuff, what do you think happens? Let me just give you a little clue. Whatever he's thinking says. When you're God and you go, I'd like this to happen, it's not like, oh, I wonder if this is going to happen. It happens. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go, because he lives. Now, did he have the resurrection body we're going to have at the second coming? No. And there's nowhere in Scripture this. Did Lazarus end up dying? He did. Was that a permanent physical death? Until Jesus comes back and he rises from the dead. But this guy who was dead, and if you've seen a dead body, this just doesn't happen. So what are the implications? Here's the first one. You remember he asked Martha, do you believe this? Biggest question, us here, you guys at home, do we believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Yeah, Martha, she believed it mostly, but still had some questions. How do you think Mary and Martha felt after Lazarus was raised from the dead? Ha! 
believing this changes our lives forever. You hear me talk about this a lot. Lots of challenges in life. Lots of challenges. Football games, family issues, work issues, whatever it is, our physical health. I'm afraid sometimes those things get more important than they actually should be. The foundational truth is, for those of us who treasure Christ, we're never going to die. Not really, not spiritually. Our bodies are going to most likely be put in the ground or you know what else you do with it. But we're going to live forever. Does anybody here have problems in life, challenging circumstances? Anybody? Join the stinking club. What's the key to facing those? Having a perspective that the final enemy has been trounced and we are going to be resurrected and believing this produces that non-anxious, joyful presence. I'm hopeful in all circumstances. Sometimes we recognize, here's what happens to me, that circumstances and the things I don't like going on in life, they're affecting me emotionally more than I would like. You understand I still battle with that? Let me tell you what I do. I lose a little joy and I become anxious. I've been walking with Christ about 40 years. At this point, I recognize it sooner and I say, okay, Lord, I just need a picture of your love and of your grace. Thanks for loving me, even though like Martha, I'm doubting your judgment about these circumstances in my life. Thanks for loving me. Here's what I need from you to now. Would I like you to change the circumstances? Sure. It's not my highest prayer. Lord, may my eternal life in you and the resurrection that's coming at the end bring that to my head and my heart more often. There's the key to our living non-anxiously and more joyfully. And then believing this gives us hope always. Oh, man, no matter what comes our way, we have hope. Is God going to want to change the circumstances in our favor sometimes? I think he is. But that's not the essence of where our hope is. Our hope is in this. We're connected to Jesus and we're never going to die. And when our body goes in the ground, one day we're going to be resurrected. And that body will never get sick, never get hurt. We'll be thin with lots of This is going to be great. I want you to think about the favorite picture you have of yourself. I'm pretty convinced God's going to put us in that frame. That is going to be great. Until then, we keep trusting him, we keep treasuring him, and we keep sharing that hope with right now the folks that don't have it, whose hope is in a football team, getting the promotion at work, getting the right house, kids being successful. None of those things are bad things. They're just not the essence and the foundation of our hope. Father, thanks for loving us. Thanks for sending Jesus into this world. Thanks for, oh, man, raising Lazarus from the dead. Oh. oh, Father, I get older, and I realize that day is likely sooner than further away. My prayer is for me and for everybody here that the foundation we have in who you are being the resurrection and being the life would be the foundation, the footing upon which we would stand. Thanks for loving us when we don't stand as firmly even as we would like 
Keep revealing Jesus to us and help us cling. For those who are still thinking about whether or not to treasure you, who may be listening right now, Father, I pray that you would continue to move in their hearts. If they're thinking about it and listening, you're already given evidence that you're at work. Help them to see the truth of who you are, that they might find the joy that comes only with walking with you.